Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell. I'm Liz Manichelle. This week, we have a really, really fun conversation with filmmaker, writer, director, Jennifer Reeder. Um, Jennifer just directed her, I think it's her third or fourth feature film, I believe, um, Knives and Skin, which is being released by IFC Midnight um, on December 6th, which if we get our shit together, this will be uh, December 2nd uh, right now, uh, if we do this right, which I think we will. I think we'll pull it off. Let's ask um, everyone what the future is like right now. <laughs> right. What's it, it like on December 2nd? Yeah. Am I in complete confidence on my first day of shooting on the alternate or am I like just completely like puking my guts out and freaking out and running around in circles? I'd like what to is know happening? that. I'd also like to know, have I gotten a haircut yet? Um, <laughs> is my son talking? Is he walking? Do I drink as much as I normally do? <laughs> in two weeks from now, what will be happening? <laughs> or geez, not even two weeks, a week. Oh my gosh. A week and three days. This a is lot terrifying. can happen in ten in nine days. Yeah, if people have not been following up on the movie, I, uh, on the movie, on the podcast, I'm making my first movie, the alternate. Um, we start shooting on December second, which is today, probably. And uh, yeah, it's a it's been a long road to get to this moment, but uh, it was really fun talking to Jennifer about her experience making films and you know making her features. I didn't get to ask the question that I should have asked instead of my my last question. I should have asked her what advice she had for a filmmaker like me who's going into their first feature, <laughs> but I didn't get to ask that question. Oh well, I bu- I, bur- I bummed it. I you know screwed it up. <laughs> she had such thoughtful answers that like she answered like thirty questions in one answer. Oh yeah, one question. She was amazing. She pretty much said like what I need to hear though in a lot of ways is just like keep going, keep doing it. You know, if things don't turn out just the way that you imagine them, don't let that bother you. Just keep going, you know. And I think that kind of advice is really encouraging, especially for someone uh, as, as successful as she is. I mean. You know, she was talking about being having a, a, a manager at Gersh or an agent at Gersh and then, you know, p- partnering with Gersh and CAA to like release her film and get it sold, you know, and then to find IFC Midnight. And then, you know, she premiered at uh, Tribeca in America and Berlin, um, you know, uh, in Europe for her film. And it's like, dude. Like, what more could you want? She played all the film festivals. She's like, oh, Fantasia, you know, Fantastic Fest. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> all the festivals that I will, like, you know, just die to be in, you know, and she's in all of them. <laughs> I know. I, or I phrase it, all the ones that I get rejected from. Um, right. What I thought was wonderful about her is, um, and I started this sentence, no one was going to say, and now it's gone. Oh, my God, Alric. Um, oh, she, con- <laughs> she confirms my theory that there's a tipping point for filmmakers. Like, she only just reinforced this theory that I have, that once you get enough support or once you, like, tip into a certain recognizability, opportunities come to you. And um, I, I've been looking for... Actually, I've been looking for people to not confirm that because I think it's kind of a dark theory of, <laughs> of our careers. But she just reconfirmed it. So all we need to right. do is get into Rotterdam um, and things will start happening for everyone else. Well, I don't think that's not what I that's not what I take away from it. I look at her IMDb and I look at the amount of movies that she's made and the amount of movies she made but that aren't on IMDb. And just thinking about like the craft and like how much time she's put into it and how she's been able to figure out a way to make this a sustainable life. Like she's done her, you know, she does teaching and it sounds like she still teaches, you know, on the side. And um, it sounds like 
through that and through whatever she can make on her films, like that's how she's provided for herself. And, um, you know, it's like, I think that's just the point is like, keep making movies, keep doing it. Don't give up. Don't let a bad movie, uh, turn like sour you on the experience or, you know, make you want to quit. Just, you know, chalk that up to like, Oh, that didn't work out so well. Let me make another one. See how that one works and just keep on going. And I think that's what sort of, you know, opened up her her um, channels to having things be, things happen and things get made. And I think also, which we didn't really talk about, but I think a big part of how she got Signature Move, um, from my understanding, is that uh, she had a feature already that she had made, or at least one, maybe even two, that she had already directed at that point. And I think having the, the those like smaller indie features under your belt makes you a candidate for you know a slightly bigger indie feature you know whereas like lisa who i don't think she even like thought she had a chance at directing the movie signature move that she co-wrote with her friend but when i talked to her about it years ago uh, she had said oh no like jennifer is just so much more experienced she's the right director for this movie like we are so lucky to get her blah 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 and um that was like really interesting for me to hear just to be like oh wow so it's like she, she they couldn't get signature move made without someone like jennifer and Jennifer was just in the right position uh, to be able to to get that movie, you know. And so, so hear the story from both sides was kind of was really fun. Well, also, and I'm just so impressed by Jennifer's passion and love of storytelling. It's like she's like a really calm person, which is always impressive to me just because I'm the opposite. But also she just loves making art. Like she was saying how she makes a film a year and it's just like, that's wonderful. That kind of behavior and passion should be rewarded. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy for her. Yeah. And like, yeah, she keeps on making shorts and she said like, Oh, I'm, I'm definitely going to continue making shorts, you know, um, in between features. And it's funny that she said that because just looking at her IMDb, it's like, yeah, of course you do. You've made like whatever, like three in between the, the, these two features and you made two between your last two feet, your last feature or whatever. And yeah, she just keeps on making short films, which is cool for me. Cause like, I love making short films and I'd love to keep on making those in between bigger projects, you know, if I had the opportunity, but, um, and it's also kind of encouraging to hear that she's like, I don't have to make, put my own money into movies anymore, which is like the ultimate like goal, you know, which I don't think, you know, is in my grasp at this moment, but maybe in 10 years and, you know, five more short films and one more feature, maybe it will be. <laughs> That's the way to be positive. All right. <laughs> right. Right. I just got to work a lot harder. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we have one iTunes review that is not oh, read excellent. aloud. And I think this is like the first one that has been released or was written after you became co-host. Is that right? I think so. And also just probably a lot of the reviews we've been reading recently were from the like iTunes review push in right, late right, spring. In May. And right. this one's like a real <laughs> review. <laughs> oh. Hey, they're all real, okay, Liz? Don't downplay my May reviews just because we were doing a contest, okay? Like, you know, they weren't all pity reviews, you know? Well, this one, let's just, let's focus on the positive. This one is real. <laughs> <Okay>. Good. <laughs> D big dude. 
always feel uncomfortable reading these usernames, um, wrote, making movies is actually hard, and it's a five-star review. Um, do you want to take it all record? Do you want me to keep going? Keep going. Keep going. All right. D Big Dude, uh, he says, I'm thankful that this show exists. It's a great place to hear people discussing roadblocks that maybe you yourself have gone through, see coming, or maybe even more importantly, don't see coming. The community here is great, and I basically love everything about it. Excited to hear the format keep evolving. And here updates as Ulrich enters production on his feature, The Alternate. What an appropriate review to read today. Oh, that's December very sweet. 2nd. Today, December, December 2nd, 2nd. As we're on set shooting the movie, doing our first scenes. <laughs> uh, and if it's early enough in the morning when you're listening to this, we'll be in a kitchen shooting a really cool shot uh, that I don't want to spoil. But uh, it's a fun one. And then, uh, yeah, then we go into some other cool stuff. But yeah, it's all, whew, it's exciting. I mean, I, I'm, I'm freaking out. But uh, I'm also just, I, it's like moments of being completely stressed and freaking out. And the moments of being like, oh, my God, all these people in this room are talking about my movie right now. Like, we just had a production meeting yesterday. And, like, on the board is, like, every scene from my movie. And the, the first AD is going through everything. We've got all our department heads there. And everyone's asking me questions. And it's like, oh, my God, we're making my movie. They're, all these people are here for me. Like, I, I felt, like, guilty and lucky and, you know, just thrilled and nervous and all at the same time. But, uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, I'm just trying to enjoy the experience as much as I can, you know, and not freak out. Yeah, but, you... Uh, Got this future Ulrich. I'm trying to figure out, like, <laughs> do I give current Ulrich, who is who will be past Ulrich, some sort of right. piece of advice? Or do I just say, you already have this because you are doing it right now, future Ulrich? Well, you've made two features, Liz. What, would, what do you say to future Ulrich or current Ulrich or whatever Ulrich? Oh, my God. Just, like... Get through it. I, I'm not like you. I don't enjoy this process. I hate I hate being on set. So it's like, just get through it so you can get to all the fun stuff like post. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Advice taken. All right. Um, well, I think this has gone on long enough. This is a really, really fun conversation with Jennifer. So without further ado, here is our talk with uh, writer, director, Jennifer Reeder. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, you guys. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, before we get into all the great things, um, Knives and Skin, your older movies, all that stuff, can you just tell everybody uh, who you are and what you do? Sure. So yeah, my name is Jennifer Reeder. I am a filmmaker. I, I write scripts and um, direct films. I've directed a whole bunch of um, short films. Um, and a handful of feature films, including the most recent, Knives and Skin. I did not go to film school. I went to art school. I didn't make art in art school. I made films in film school. But just for, for context, the my, uh, my sort of provenance begins making film and video work for galleries and and. In museums, like installation-based work. I sometimes say I'm the impossible love child of Maya Darren and Steve McQueen in that I came to filmmaking through dance, like Maya Darren, very, um, you know, lauded experimental filmmaker from, from years ago, many years ago. And Steve McQueen, who now, of course, is making big, um, big budget feature length films, but also started out making um, or doing uh, installation based moving image work. Yeah. Didn't he do like hundreds of short films before he made his first feature or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can see that influence in something like his Hunger, which was his first feature length film. And I think for me, you know, every every film that I make and the most recent films are all scripted narratives with actors. Um, they 
follow more or less a conventional um, kind of linear plot progression. But the influence of um, my earlier, my beginnings in in visual art or surrounded by people who were, um, you know, painters and sculptors and photographers, etc., is uh, I think you can see that influence, especially um in, in knives and skin. Can you talk a little bit about that um, the shorts in the in the gallery space? Just because when we talk to filmmakers who are not in that installation world, we're often like flummoxed by what to do with our short films. But can you tell us how you've kind of entered that world and been able to distribute your films in that way? Sure. So um, I mean, I I didn't none of, it, that didn't really start when I was in when I was in undergrad and I went to undergrad at, at Ohio State in Columbus, Ohio. It really took hold when I was in graduate school at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, which had a video department, not film video new media. I don't think that those just, just standalone video departments exist anymore. I think the word video itself seems a little dusty, um, although it sort of accurately describes something that's not, for instance, 16 millimeter film. Um, but at that time, you know, it's less and less, but at that time there really was a pretty hardy life for moving image work in a gallery and museum setting. And in a way there were no rules. You could tell stories or it could be much more abstract. So, you know, a piece could be nine, a nine second loop or a, a piece could be 24 hours long. I mean, truly. And when I say that, you know, there's examples of that. Um, there's examples of, of, of all of that in the world. I mean, the problem at that time and still, you know, now for anyone who's working and moving image in a gallery is that it's very hard to sell. It's not an object, you know, I mean, the reality is that it's infinitely reproducible. So how do you make a moving image work special, like a, like a singular painting, for instance? Um, and it's also the case that, you know, um, people who go to galleries and, and museums, I mean, that's a, that's a really kind of rarefied audience, right? And it's, you know, it's, it's also not the case that people will gen, gen, generally like sit in a gallery space and watch a moving image project from beginning to end. They kind of drift, they come in the beginning, they can leave whenever they want. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a chaotic, <laughs> um, uh, you know, life for, for a film. And so, you know, I lived in that world for a little while and that seemed kind of interesting. I mean, my work was at the Venice Biennale and the Whitney Biennial and, and in lots of other great galleries and museums kind of across the world, which seemed, uh, you know, like nice line, excuse me, nice lines to add, you know, to my, to my CV or to my bio, but it was very unsatisfying. I really just wanted to return to a theatrical environment where everyone sat down and, you know, watched the film from beginning to end. Um, even if it was a short film in the context of a program of short films, um, that collective experience in a theater with the lights down uh, is so much more satisfying. And I was always trying to tell stories in even the more abstract work that I was making early on. So in the, you know, late uh, or in the or kind of early 2000s, I guess, I just kind of acquiesced and, and, and gave in and started making um, narratives. And I've never... I've never looked back. And I do think that now it's, it is, you know, there are very few, there are very few artists, I would say, who are, who are, who are only working in, in, in moving image. You know, it's, it's truly moved out of the, the gallery and museum system. And I think that has a lot to do with the commodic, the, the sort of, it's, it's, it's um, resistance to commodification, you know, for instance. And I know that I, first, I, I certainly, you know, don't, don't regret 
um, leaving that world um, and moving into the theatrical world and all the stuff that I loved about making film and video work in that context, I still bring with me. You know, I still feel like I, I, I can take some risks in terms of how I tell a story. Um, as you mentioned, I've made a lot of short films that have done um, actually quite well outside of the US, in Europe in particular, that just has a different appreciation for the form of the short film. There are festivals entirely dedicated to short films. Short films get broadcast. There's funding for short films. It's a very different culture than it is in the US where you know US filmmakers are expected to perhaps make one or two short films as a kind of a calling card for the feature but very few American filmmakers return to um, the, the short form. I mean, I can think of someone perhaps like Michael Amareta, who's, who's made a lot of great feature length films and who also is one of those rare American filmmakers who returns to, um, to the short. And I, um, I will absolutely return to, to, the sh to the short form. I actually think that, well, I say short films are people too. And I think that, <laughs> that um, you know, that in the, that short films should be regarded as, um, a legitimate, you know, form of filmmaking. There are a lot of ideas that should only be a short film. I mean, I'm sure we've all seen a feature length film that we thought, wow, that would have been fantastic if it was, you know, 87 minutes shorter. Um, and so I think it's important, <laughs> you know, I think it's important right. to really recognize that, you know, I mean, I learned how to direct and write. I learned how to find my voice making short films. And I, I mean a lot of short films, like 40 short films, which actually are all available free to the public on my Vimeo page. So if you're curious oh, about, wow. about what I'm talking about, you know, you can see actually my entire, you know, provenance um, on my Vimeo page. Oh, that's awesome. So I, I have a, a bunch of questions. So first off, um, when you were in the art world before you had made the leap to narrative, like how were you providing for yourself during this time? Were you being paid for your films that you were making and surviving that way? Or did you have to have a part-time job at that time? Like how were you able to make it a sustainable, um, you know, like life to make these, these art pieces? Right. That's a good question. And my path was not something that I think everyone wants to take or can take really. Um, so I mentioned um, graduate school. I got my MFA from the School of the Art Institute and I was actually hired to teach there part-time right after graduation. So I was an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute and also at Columbia College here in Chicago, which has a pretty robust film school. Oh, nice. um, so I was... I was teaching, which gave me money to, um, you know, pay my rent and pay my bills and, um, and enough money to, um, you know, sustain my practice. I mean, one of the reasons that um, early on I was invested in video as opposed to film is that it was so much cheaper and I could, I could do everything myself. I was in back of the camera. I was in front of the camera. I was the gaffer, the editor, the distributor. Um, I you know, I was like a, a one, uh, like a singular filmmaker sweatshop on some level. Um, and, uh, I'm not advising that for everybody, but it's what I, it's what I wanted. It's what I wanted to do at that, at that time. So I was teaching. I actually still teach. I'm a professor at the university of Illinois at Chicago. It's sort of still in a way my, my day job, um, so to speak, although I have a, a really light course load um, at this point, which I appreciate. And I remember the summer that I had saved up enough money to not teach or work for an entire summer and just make um, a film over the summertime, you know, kind of complete an entire short film over the summertime. And that was in, I'm going to say 2000, maybe 2001. 
Oh, and, nice. And that felt like a really significant transition, you know, to be able to um, sort of deal with my um, kind of time management and my finance management in a way that I had carved out basically three months to just um, make that make that film. And I actually still mostly shoot in the summertime because it's the time that I, you know, have, I'm not, I have no teaching load and very little, you know, administration, administrative load. Um, so I normally st- stick to the same schedule. I, I shoot in the summertime, um, you know, do post-production at the beginning of the fall, start getting the film ready for all of those, um, deadlines for films that or for film festivals that, you know, happen in the, um, early year, January, February. Um, and then I, you know, hopefully ha- have a premiere in one of those months. And then I start developing and writing the new script that I shoot the following summer. I mean, I've, I really try and make at least a film a year, if not, if not more than that. And I, and I really have to stick to that, um, to that schedule. I mean, I have plenty of ideas. I'm never struggling with ideas, but I really, I really stick to a very strict, um, you know, kind of development, production, post-production distribution schedule throughout the year. Yeah. I mean, you you'd said earlier that, you know, you never want to forget shorts and you'll always be making shorts. And just looking at your IMDb, it's like proof. Like you've got multiple features that you've done over the years and you always have shorts in between the features. Right. So uh, there's no reason to imagine you wouldn't stop doing that. And mm-hmm. I love that because I love making short films too. And, you know, that's all I've done so far. I'm actually going into production on my first feature in a week. Nice. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> You're in it. You are in the thick so of it. I'm, I'm a, excuse me if I'm a little rattled, but uh, <laughs> you know, I've been working a lot. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but the question is, like when you approach a feature versus a short, are there different ways that you approach the project? Um, is it like a different process or is it the same process just shorter when you're doing a short? Uh, that's a that's a great question. And um, it's one of the reasons that I really love that I champion short films. So for instance, in the writing process or the development and writing the process for a short film, I have learned that audiences are willing, very willing to do a lot of work with um, a short film. Uh, they will, they happily, you know, uh, figure out for themselves what has happened, what has happened before the first frame of the film begins. And, and they also sort of happily, enthusiastically even, you know, figure out for themselves what's happened, what happens, you know, after the, you know, the credits roll. Um, so I've found that in making short films, you can really very much experiment and take some risks with how you tell the narrative, um, and how you, um, develop characters and and how you and how it ends uh, so you there's meaning that there's um, you know things can stay in my opinion or from my experience a little looser in a short film you know the audience isn't just cons- isn't frustrated if if maybe you know a character disappears and doesn't you know reappear again I mean they really sort of understand that short films can be taken consumed kind of out of context you know of a larger right. story. Um, so I've been, I, I have, I, I have found that, you know, there's a lot of freedom in making, in making short films. Whereas in a feature film, you know, you really, in order to, to, to deliver a satisfying experience to an audience, and you certainly want an audience to be engaged over the, the duration of a feature length film, you have to, you gotta, you gotta sew up a lot of those um, narrative threads. And you have to provide, you know, engaging characters with um, kind of meaningful and believable arcs. You know, you can't actually leave too many things, um, 
you know, dangling in terms of the plot or the or the character development. People, you know, audiences just get too frustrated. Um, yeah. And as much as I want to make narratives that are unexpected and make make people think uh, during and after, I don't want an audience to walk away frustrated. So, um, you know, that's why I think that, you know, I'd encourage people to to make short films and to really find their voice through a short film. Um, and short films are also, you know, cheaper and faster to make, you know, so that when you so that when it comes time to make your to make your feature, you know, you're like a like a little like a fine tuned machine in terms of your, you know, writing and directing in terms of even just how you want to tell a story and where your voice is in that in that film. Um, this is amazing because I love I feel like um, from the people we've talked to, you're a little bit of an outlier of, in terms of your perspective, especially um, working and living in Chicago and then focusing on both features and, um, and shorts. This is very, and also I just like to talk to women in film because I'm a woman in film um, <laughs> and I digress. Okay, so <laughs> Jennifer, um, can you tell us a little bit about the putting together of Knives and Skin and, and maybe... I'm a little bit biased in this question, a little bit more vouching for working outside of LA and New York when putting together these larger scale projects? Sure. So with Knives and Skin, so I had been thinking about Knives and Skin since 2016, let's say, because the the there had been a, a bunch of, a collection of short films that I had made that had been... Um, very embraced and, you know, vetted through the festival circuits here in the U.S. went to, you know, Sundance outside of the U.S., Berlin, London. I mean, they were they were short films that I felt very good about in terms of my voice and they had found an audience. So I thought, OK, now's the time to really, you know, put the word out there that I want that I want to, you know, make a feature length film that's that's um, working with the same themes, for instance, as the shorts that I had done previous. And at that time, there was a company in um, Chicago, New City Films, that were getting ready to produce a Chicago-based film by a Chicago-based writer named Fazia Mirza. They were looking for a female Chicago-based director who had narrative experience. There's a couple of us, you know, literally like less, less, <laughs> like two, <laughs> less, yeah, definitely less than a handful. And I was offered, I was offered the gig. I mean, and, and it, so this was a film that that was shot in in 2016, a feature length film called Signature Move um, that I directed, written by Fazia Mirza and Lisa Donato. Uh, it premiered at um, the at 2017 South by Southwest. It's on Amazon right now. It's a very different kind of film that that I would write. It's a very broad romantic comedy about um, a Muslim woman who falls in love with a Mexican woman, one hot summer in Chicago. It's a beautiful kind of family drama, American immigration story. It's an Urdu, English and Spanish. It's very, very different from Knives and Skin, but it's it's still in the trajectory of what I believe, you know, telling important stories about identity and and women's experiences and and making a film that that starts really tough conversations um, about, you know, race and gender and and um, xenophobia and homophobia and et cetera, et cetera. So the so yeah. new, new City Films then when I so I kind of put a I could I put a pin in Knives and Skin, you know, to make um, signature move because they were on a slightly different um, deadline. And I knew that I really needed to kind of overhaul the, the script for Knives and Skin. So doing signature move really allowed me to um, to step back from the Knives and Skin. And so when after signature move was released, uh, you know, I sort of robustly returned to to the script for Knives and Skin and um, really overhauled it 
um, if you can imagine, there were actually more characters than there are in the final version. So I consolidated a bunch of characters, really kind of figured out my plot progression, figured out how to tell a feminist story where there's a missing girl, you know, at the at the core. I still didn't have a producer. I had a lot of people interested who were saying, if you shoot it, you know, in upstate New York, I'll get involved. If you shoot it in Louisville, Kentucky, I'll get involved. But I wanted to shoot it in uh. the Midwest. It's a Midwestern story. And so... New City Films, Brian and Jan Hegelke came to me again and said, we had a great run with Signature Move. If you if you want to shoot this film, you know, around Chicago, then, you know, let's do it. And so I, uh, there's a lot of films that are shot in Chicago. Signature Move was shot in Chicago. You know, Chicago is a big, you know, kind of bustling metropolis and, and Signature, Knives and Skin is not a bustling metropolis movie. So we started looking at, you know, areas outside of the city. And we found Lamont, Illinois, which is 30 miles south of the city, um, which is where all the exteriors were shot. It's a little refinery town with, you know, a train that runs through it and a quarry and a river and a, you know, and a big high school, you know, where everybody comes out, you know, the entire town comes out for Friday night football. It was within like, you know, the Chicago Film Commission district. Illinois has a great tax credit. it was in the distance for the crew and the cast, all Chicago-based, to drive to, etc. And so, you know, we basically said, okay, let's do this. And, um, you know, in terms of, like I just mentioned, the, the entire crew came from Chicago. Right now, there's a great, there's lots and lots of great, talented crew in Chicago. I think partially that's because there's there's a lot of TV that's being shot in Chicago now, and a lot more both indie film and kind of big studio films are being shot in Chicago, I think because of the Illinois tax credit. Um, and because you really can shoot, you know, if you, you can go not that far outside of the city and you can be in some place that feels rural or you can be in the South side, South side and it, and it feels like a, you know, a real kind of earthy South side neighborhood, or you can shoot downtown and you've got, you know, this great kind of mid-century architecture that makes it feel like really cool and urban. So there's a lot of, you know, just in terms of landscapes, there's a, you know, Chicago and the Chicago land, you know, area has a lot to offer. And honestly, I wanted to sleep in my own bed at night. You know, I didn't want to have to haul myself and my whole family, you know, to upstate New York or to LA to make to make this film. And like I said, what it's not a it's it's a Midwestern film. So I wanted to shoot it in the Midwest. We were talking to an LA-based casting director about casting, and she really said, you know, this is an ensemble cast. There's not really one lead among either the adults or the young people. So you should try and cast it out of Chicago if you can. So we worked with um, a local casting agency, uh, and basically, and was it was easy. It was so easy to to cast, you know, to cast this entire you know ensemble uh, from the Chicago community. I mean, and there are. You know, Chicago has this v- super vibrant, extremely well-respected theater community um, that, you know, and that trickles down through the high schools. And so you've got a lot of really, really talented young people who now, since, again, there's so much TV and film happening in Chicago, all of these um, young actors and the adults who have a lot, a lot of uh, acting experience, let's say, on the stage and who are deeply committed to acting 
and who take a lot of risks because I do think that theater people are used to sort of, um, you know, it's, it's risky to perform live in front of an audience. But now they also have experience in front of a camera because they're, they're, ta- they're, they're taking on parts on these TV shows and other, and other films that are coming to Chicago. You know, we have this, in my opinion, you know, the thing that really grounds this whole film um, and the way that I got away with some of the awkward and, you know, weirder moments in the film is because the, the performances are so grounding and, and grounded. Um, so it, it really was, yeah, it was a, an entirely, you know, Chicago-based um, production. And I, I think it's really important. Look, I know that that's not possible in every single city, you know, like I'm mentioning that, you know, that Chicago does have, have a much more robust infrastructure for filmmaking than it did 10 years ago. Um, and there are, there, there are, there's crew here, talented crew, talented cast here. I'm, I know that not every single um, city has that you know, you, you might have, you might be in some place where you do have to kind of bring in some casting crew, um, and, and equipment, etc. But I think it's really important to, to stick to a vision, uh, as a filmmaker. And if that vision isn't in LA or New York, you know, you can figure it out. I mean, it's, it just doesn't feel like it's actually that hard. And, you know, but, but budget for it, you know, if you do have to bring in casting crew, cause you're in a, a much sort of smaller town or you do have to, you know, bring in equipment and trucks and you do have to, you know, convince a local catering company what it means to cater, you know, a film set, you know, you just have to kind of budget for that and put in the extra labor to have those conversations. But it's entirely, it's entirely possible. Um, and I, for one, am going to try to, um, I mean, I've shot, I've shot some shorts in LA and that was a, that was a super fun experience, but it's really not, it's not the environment where I write my films. It's not the, it's not the landscape where my films exist and not for sure. Neither is New York. So for me, landscapes, um, are important. The, the, the land as a, as a, uh, or the landscape or the, the environment as, as its own character in both my short films and certainly in Knives and Skin, it's, it's a real part of the narrative. So for me, it's important that I, that I find the location that is true and authentic to that story. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've actually never shot in Los Angeles for a short film before that I've directed or, you know, just commercial stuff. But uh, yeah, I love shooting in my backyard. It's just fun because it's like, you know, you're inspired by the places that you're, that you're in and then you go out with your camera and you capture those and then it just it feels right for the piece because that's kind of where it belongs in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. you know. Really quick, wanted to shout out to Lisa Donato. She's been on the show a few times. She's a friend. And uh, so when you, I'm glad you mentioned Signature Move because, you know, I remember watching that trailer when it first came out uh, years ago and just being really excited. And then so when I saw that you, you were going to be a guest on the show, I was really excited because I was like, oh, it's the woman who directed Signature Move. That's right so awesome. Right on. That's great. Yeah. Knives and Skin. I mean, that sounds awesome. I love that you did it all in Chicago and that you used, um, you know, all local cast because uh, you, you said you didn't have anyone come from L.A., for the movie? No one. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I'm basically doing the same thing, but in the San Francisco version for my movie. So, um, yeah, that's, that's that's good to hear other people are doing it too. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and I think that, for, yeah, I think that's, you know, San Francisco is a place also, I, I, in 2004, 2005, I shot a film in San Francisco and I, it was the same thing. I mean, I found, I found cast and crew and equipment. And so I think, you know, there are cities that, you know, they're maybe the bigger ones that, you know, have that 100% have that, that infrastructure. And you're not, you're not even digging deep to find that, 
to find that talent. And for me, for instance, it was really important that there was inclusivity in the cast in front of the camera, but I wanted inclusivity in, in terms of the crew. So there's a lot of, there were, and it didn't take, you know, it didn't, it didn't take um, an extra effort to find, you know, women who, for the camera department and, you know, women for, you know, the G&E department. And there were a lot of, you know, folks of color behind the camera, LGBTQ behind the camera, you know, I mean, I needed it to be a, a wholly inclusive film and, and it is. Awesome. Um, so like, I just want to talk a little bit more about, and you touched on this a bit, but like, you know, working on signature move, that was something that you didn't write and that you were, you kind of hired to, to direct this movie and make it happen. And you had a great experience doing that, but the knives and skin is very much your own story. So Talk to us about the difference when you're approaching those two projects. Like, is it is it the same process again for like preparing for the films, or does it feel different when it's your own your own words, your own story that you've worked on for for years? Oh, it feels super super different. And um, I would 100% take on someone else's material in the future. I had a great experience working with Fazia and Lisa. That film, Signature Move, is particular, you know, because. It is about cultures that are very much different from mine. I'm not Mexican, nor am I Muslim. Um, So, or Pakistani, you know, I mean, it's, um, I feel like that film in particular had some challenges in terms of um, making sure that my part of the storytelling was authentic. I mean, of course, Fazia herself is, um, you know, um, Pakistani and Muslim and you know, the um, Sari Sanchez, uh, who plays her love interest, is um, Mexican. We all lived in Chicago. We knew how to, you know, we knew how to deal with with Chicago. But that was a but that was a that was a challenge. Um, and it's something that I don't necessarily, you know, I've not I've certainly written parts for people who, who aren't me, who don't look like me. But that was a, that was farther than, you know, I have gone in terms of my own writing and and Fozia and Lisa know this. The humor in Knives and or in the humor in Signature Move is um, very broad. You know, it's very accessible humor. Right. Um, and I feel like my own tendency when I write is to have a, you know humor be a little darker, a little more opaque, erring on the side of a kind of awkward humor rather than sort of knee slapping humor. Um, Having said that, though, of course, it was really great to then tour or tour signature move around and watch audiences, you know, especially audiences full of like, you know, South Asian people or, you know, brown queer women, etc. Just laughing and totally enjoying that film and realizing that, you know, it's important that there are films about marginalized people that are that are fun and funny and celebratory, you know, and this is, I mean, this is not a downer of a film. This is a really beautiful, celebratory, fun, funny film. It's hard to say that it was, it's, or it's a funny thing, I suppose, to say that it was the most difficult thing was making something so fun and accessible. I feel like that's actually what people probably mostly want to do. Um, but my, ten- <laughs> but my tendency is to kind of go dark and, um, dark and, and opaque. Um, Right. So yeah, I would definitely take on I would take on someone else's material again. I'm not so I I don't know that I would take on such a um, kind of broad romantic comedy again, but you know we'll see. For Knives and Skin and in its distribution, its release, 
Um, how did you find your distribution partner in IFC Midnight? And what were you looking for in the film's release? Was theatrical the primary goal? Like, what did you need to have in the contract? So, um, I mean, we had a we had a domestic sales team. So this the we um, between Gersh and CAA, they were selling. They sold the film domestically. So they were the ones kind of responsible for sending the link of the film out to distributors. Um, when I knew that IFC had it, I mean, that's when I would kind of go to bed with my fingers crossed. Literally, I'm that kind of a superstitious person. You know, there's no place like IFC home. There's no place or, you know, there's no place like home at IFC. Like really just thinking like that for me, um, IFC and specifically IFC Midnight um, felt like and absolutely feels like now that it's all confirmed, a done deal, it's a perfect home for this film. So, um, you know, and we had other offers and there were certainly people who passed um, uh, who have since, I think, regretted it, which is the best case scenario, right? My, my conversations with um, IFC that, of course, involved my producers who have a little bit of different information in terms of what the, you know, the, the real kind of nuts and bolts of that deal was. I sort of stayed out of that part. But what I loved about working with the IFC team is that they really loved the film and they not only champion the film, but they they champion me as a filmmaker, you know, which feels really important that, you know, uh, you have a, distribu- a strib- distributor who really lovingly, enthusiastically takes you and your film under their wing. And you know that they will um, talk about the film in the same way that you would talk about the film. I mean, IFC becomes a really a kind of a proxy for me. And because I have you know, it's taken me a long time to, to establish my voice and also to establish a relationship with festivals and audiences. And so you don't want a proxy to come in and kind of ruin that. You want them to enhance it. And IFC has for sure done that. I had, you know, creative input around the trailer and around the poster and around the, you know, just the general, um, you know, sort of marketing release. It was definitely important for us to have a theatrical release. I mean, a lot of films just go straight to VOD. Um, and that's a great way for a lot of a more broad, more broader audiences to to um, to consume the material for sure. But it was important for a film like this that we shot on vintage anamorphic that's got this beautiful score by Nick Zinner from the Yeah Yeah Yeahs um, that's got all of those kind of singing scenes in it. It was important to me that that audiences have the chance to see it in a theater with an audience who's cheering at the right parts, kind of groaning at the right parts, laughing at the right parts. So it's going to have, you know, like a 25 to 30 city theatrical release on December 6th. And on that same day, it'll have VOD and, um, uh, yeah. So on December 6th, you know, like it's going to, you know, it's going to be in a lot of cities. So a lot of people will have an opportunity to see it in the theater, um, or at the very least to see it, um, on VOD. Wow. That's exciting. Um, you kind of gl- glazed over one big thing that I think our listeners are probably very <laughs> curious about is you said it was rep by CCA and Gersh. Yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> so, so my, so my agent is with Gersh. Um, and so Gersh wanted to be involved. Ah, okay. Yeah. So Gersh wanted to be involved and then it's a, I'll, I'll try and keep the story brief, but, um, Knives and Skin went through a work in progress competition at the American Film Festival in Wroclaw, Poland, which happens every, oh. every fall. Wow. Um, and it's a super cool opportunity um, for feature-length films, American films, um, work in progress. It's a competition. You can. We actually won a post-production package that included VFX and color grading. 
but a woman from CAA was there at the screening and um, ah. and told, or maybe a woman who wasn't at CAA, but a woman was there who had a friend at CAA who came back to the States and was like, you have to see Jennifer Reeder's new film. So a woman from CAA contacted me and said, we've heard really great things about your new film. Could we take a look at it? So when it was ready... Um, we sent it to them and, you know, they had com- they had conference calls with my um, producers and they just said, like, we want to be able to sell this film. And I thought it was kind of unheard of for two agencies to get together and sort of sell, sell, sell a film jointly. But, you know, I guess it's not unheard of and they worked really synchronously. Um, and, you know, here, here we are. So it's um, I know that not everybody has has access to that per se. I mean, but it's a little right. bit of, a little bit of both, both that I had an agent going into it. So that's something that, you know, not everybody has access to. But, you know, I, I also was in this this uh, this um, work in progress competition where someone who happened to know somebody at CAA saw it, you know. So right. there are these circumstances where, you know, obviously when something isn't finished yet, you don't want to, you know, send it to too many people. But that just was a really wacky, lucky circumstance, you know? And then of course the other people at CAA, her colleagues really loved the film too. So, you know, that certainly, um, makes a difference, but so it was a little bit of both, just kind of something that was in place that I feel really lucky enough to have an agent and then something else that just felt like luck really. And then did you just apply for that work in progress program? Um, or was that something that you had to get invited to? You can, anybody can apply. So I think that the call for entries comes in the summertime and it's oh, nice. um, so it's called the American Film Festival. It's a film festival that only shows American films. It's in Wroclaw, Poland, which spelled out looks like Roclaw. So it's W-R-O-C-L-A-W. And it's a really spectacular, completely legitimate film festival. They invite maybe five to ten American films that are at work in progress to, to screen at the, at the festival to a very closed audience like industry people and journalists. Um, and you have a, you can win, you know, post-production or you can get, you know, a kind of an interview, uh, like a, a pre, you know, fest um, interview. I mean, which is what I had. There was, um, you know, somebody from Filmmaker Magazine and Ion Cinema who saw it as a work in progress and then included it in some of their festival prediction lists, etc. cetera. Um, but I returned then to Poland about a year ago I went to Warsaw to do the color grading and the VFX. And even though that seems like, wow, that's kind of a, that's a lot of work. But what, <laughs> right. and, but when you have, when you get color grading and VFX in kind or deeply, deeply discounted, I mean, that, that offsets your budget enormously. Um, and it was a totally professional operation. I love how the color looks and I love how the VFX look. And I, it's most likely that I will that I will um, use those companies again in the future. Um, and then, so did you end up doing film festivals uh, with this film um, before you went straight to IFC or how, how did that work? Oh, for sure. So Knives and Skin had its world premiere at the Berlin Film Festival. Um, oh, nice. In February. So it's it's almost a year. It's almost been a year, you know, of like travel, right. traveling around with it. Um, its North American premiere was at Tribeca in, oh, wow. in their midnight section, which I really, which I liked quite a bit um, uh, because it's a their kind of genre section. Um, it got some great genre press coming out of um, Tribeca. It actually then went to a bunch of um, 
Genre Fest, um, Fantasia in Montreal, Fantastic in Austin, oh, wow. Fright Fest yeah. in London, Overlook in New Orleans. All the good ones. All the good ones. I just it was, <laughs> it was at Frameline in San Francisco, um, oh, among other wow, places. Cool. Um, and I just um, got back yesterday, last night, from Los Angeles, where it sort of rounded out. It had its last festival screening at AFI, the AFI Fest. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, I'm happy to be done touring with it on the festival circuit, circuit although, you know, that's also a ton of fun. Um, yeah, and then its next stop in two weeks from today is, uh, yeah, IFC. Um, I know we're closing out soon, so I'll, I think we each have a last question. We'll try to <laughs> figure it out, Jennifer. Making movies is hard. You sound incredibly stable and solid as a human. What are your visions or, or hopes for, like, how do you envision success? Like, you seem successful right now. You seem incredibly successful. But what are your ultimate goals as an artist in this industry? I mean, it's very simple. I just want to keep making making films. It's not, and I and it's, however that um plays out. I mean, right now I feel lucky enough to no longer be investing any of my own money into my films, you know, so I have a, I have a sustainable practice in that, in that regard. Um, but I want to, um, I mean, even if that wasn't the case, I just feel like, you know, that if you are a filmmaker starting out, you know, do not be discouraged by, you know, rejections from festivals. I still get lots of rejections from festivals. I get lots of rejections from um, grant applications. I get bad reviews. Um, I get, you know, uh, with Knives and Skin, there were producers I want to work with that, you know, hard pass. I mean, like no is part of the game. And um, it's hard, that's, it's hard to swallow when you, when it's your baby, you know, when it's your creative vision, you know, because that creative vision is really tied to your heart in a way. It's a very emotional process. But, um, you know, you you just have to kind of get up and and um, and keep and keep going. Um, I know that sounds like kind of cliche and kumbaya, but it's really true. And I've made I've made films that I didn't that I didn't love, you know, that I thought like, oh, wow, that didn't work. But it didn't. But I you and it's actually important to acknowledge that like, wow, that didn't that didn't quite work out like I wanted. And to learn from that, learn from it and figure out how to not do that the next time. I feel super thankful that, you know, that what people loved in my short films is what people are really loving in the feature length film. I mean, it's really true that once you make a feature length film that your audience broadens, you know, I mean, there's, there's nothing I don't love about that part, you know? Um, so, and I'm working on it. I'm working on a subsequent, um, feature film, uh, because I want to kind of keep that momentum going. So that's, that's something that's actually really driving me right now is that, you know, I made this film that was exactly the film I wanted to make in terms of knives and skin. It's been loved. It's being loved and embraced, which is, just exactly what I had hoped for. And, you know, people are saying, um, what are you working on next? And so I'm actually in formal development for the next, um, the next project, meaning I'm getting paid by a production company right now to to write my next, um, feature length film, which is, you know, I just am pinching myself and not taking any of that for granted, (laughs) you know? Wow. Well, congratulations. That's pretty amazing. You know, it's kind of like the dream story for all us independent filmmakers to like, you know, come on the end of uh, making all these movies and then have that kind of success. That's that's amazing. Um, I have one last small little question um, and it might sound silly, but 
you know, throughout your festival run and working on Knives and Skin, when did CAA and Gersh get involved? Was it before you went into the film festivals or did they wait until after they saw how well you did at festivals? No, it was all before. It was all before. Okay. I mean, it all kind of came together in a short period of time, like a 10 day period of time, really, because it was oh, around wow. this time that I sent my film to Berlin, which is where I really wanted to premiere. Um, and CAA and Gersh and even What the Films, who's the foreign sales agent, were all interested in, in sort of making offers. And so um, it all kind of came together really quickly. I mean, CAA and Gersh said, we want to sell this film. What the Films said, we want to sell this film outside of North America. And, you know, when we were kind of thinking about, you know, whether that was those were the best homes in terms of sales for the film, Berlin said, you know, like, welcome to the Berlinale for your world premiere. And then it all kind of happened really fast. So it was, um, you know, looking back on a year, a year ago right now, it was a super wacky kind of nail biting time. But they but all those people 100 percent came on, came on board before we had a world premiere, which is also rare. But, you know, again, not taking it for granted. Awesome. Do you have time for one more question or do you have to jet? I think I have to go. Um, okay. Well, I think my, my, yeah, I think I have to go. But I love talking <laughs> to you guys. This has been yeah, great, Jennifer. Too. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, thank you for listening. And thanks to Jennifer Reeder for being on the show. Um, Jennifer's film is, as she talks about, is open based in like a lot of markets nationwide theatrically yeah. and check it out. And also she mentioned you could see all her shorts on her Vimeo page. So like right. she's an accessible filmmaker. That's pretty badass. Yeah. That's a dark hole that you can go down just watching short film after short film. But I mean, that's, I love doing that, you know, and it's really cool. Cause like a lot of times with filmmakers that are on the show, like they're, they're not all in one place. Like maybe one's on Vimeo and one's on, some weird other website or they're not even out there at all. But like, you know, to have a filmmaker have all 40 on their Vimeo page, that's super cool, you know, and that's what I want to aspire to be. Like, I want to put all my stuff on my Vimeo. Well, I have. <laughs> but I want to continue to do that, you know, so like people can just, you know, if they want to see my stuff, it's all there for them to watch. Be you know? like Ulrich and Jennifer Reeder. Um, exactly. Also, check out our website. Making oh, Movies well, is Hard. Yes, go on. Uh, really quickly, yeah. we should just clarify, the movie comes out on December 6th um, in uh, 30 mar- thirty. I guess she said 30 markets? Is that what she said? It was a crazy number. It was great. Yeah, it is pretty good. So uh, look for that in your local theater on December 6th. And it's also same-day release on VOD platforms on December 6th. So if you can't see it, see it in the theater, it's not in your market, uh, just you know, type it in on the old Amazon or the old, uh, you know, wherever you get your VOD purchases and search it for it there, you know, and uh, we'll make sure to put all the links to the other places that you can learn more about the film on the website, too. All right, Liz, take it away. Quick side note, I think I became an adult when I started using the word market instead of city. Okay, <laughs> end side note. Um, okay. right, so check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. We read them. Or, and I'm sorry, Jenna. <laughs> I know that this lovely filmmaker named Jenna has been emailing us and we oh. owe her a response. So Jenna's I know. owe you a response, Jenna. Jenna's had a lot of success with her film too. And I mean, it's no, uh, you know, it's not like we don't want to have her on the show or anything. It's just like, we have no time right now. Liz is going into production on her third feature. I'm going to production on my feature. It's uh, ooh, it's wacky crazy right now. Um, <laughs> but, um, maybe in 2020, we'll have more time to have some more guests on the show. Cause yeah. I think we're kind of done unless Liz does it on her own. <laughs> I, we, but we have a long list. We'll see if we can make it work. We have a long list. That's true. Um, you can, um oh, find us on Twitter. Wait, you take this one. Take us, take social media. <laughs> Yeah. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at MMIH Podcast. And I am Ulrich B on Twitter and Instagram. And Liz is? 
Liz Manischel, everywhere you are looking right now. And, uh, you know, we don't have very many iTunes reviews. I think it partly is because we read this at the end of the show and no one hears it. So, uh, but yeah, if you like the show, please give us an iTunes review. They are really important, um, not just to get closer to the numbers that Just Shoot It has, but also just to help people, <laughs> you know, find the show and like the show and see the show. Um, so, yeah. So, at uh, see the show, listen to the show, I should say. Um, so do that. And then also Patreon, we have that too. Um, we need to do more work on making that better, but we, we're about to release a new logo in the next couple weeks, hopefully, what? maybe month. I didn't what? know about this. <laughs> <laughs> and so hopefully that logo will be awesome enough that we'll put it on merch like hats or shirts yeah. or stickers or whatever, you know. Uh, also to, to copy, just shoot it because those guys are so great. Um so yeah, and any anything? Any last words, Liz? Or you know, should we no. just talk to these guys next week? Let's talk. No, to all, <laughs> next week we will talk to all of you, and we look forward to it. Okay. <laughs>